Well, hello, Center Street Church family. Author James Byron Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, he tells the story of a man named Ben whom he met during a summer job at a retirement community. Ben took a liking to James, and after several weeks of small talk, he proceeded to share his story uh, with him. Ben said, I was born in 1910. I made my first million when I was 25 years old. By the age of 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friend. My motto was simple, take all you can from whoever you can. I amassed wealth, and everyone was impressed with me. I had a lot of power in those days. I had 2,000 employees, and all of them looked up to me or were afraid of me. Money and making money was really all I was interested in. I had three wives, all who left me either because of neglect on my part or because they caught me in one of my many affairs. I have one daughter who is now in her 40s, but she refuses to speak with me. I suppose you could say, I ruined my life because today I have nothing, really. Oh, I still have more money than I could ever spend, but that brings me no joy. I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one, and now no one cares about me. In his book, The Applause of Heaven, Max Lucado he tells the story of another man, Robert Reed. Robert's hands are twisted and his feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth, comb his hair, or put on his underwear. You see, Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from doing the things that most of us just take for granted, like going for a walk, riding a bike, or driving a car. But it didn't keep him from graduating from university with a degree in Latin. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at a junior college or venturing overseas on five mission trips. In fact, it didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary to, Pol uh, to uh, Portugal for over six years in which God used this humble man to introduce over 70 people to Jesus Christ over the years he was there. Lakato describes a worship service that he attended in which Robert was speaking. Lakato says, I watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. I watched them lay a Bible in his lap. I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages. I watch people in the audience wipe away tears of admiration from their faces. And I watched him hold his bent hand up in the air and at the top of his lungs shout, In Christ, I have everything I need for joy. Now, both of these stories are true. And I believe they have something to say to each of us. One man had everything this world has to offer, things that people will sell their soul to attain. And yet he ended up alone, bitter 
despairing of life itself. The other has little that this world has to offer. And even though he has faced countless obstacles that would defeat and discourage many, in Christ he feels totally satisfied and has everything he needs for joy. You know, the decisions that we make in life have consequences. Where we end up in life, if we look back, is really accumulation of many of the decisions that we have made. Each of us today are in a position to determine which pathway we will travel the rest of our lives, whether we will live for ourselves like Ben did or whether like Robert we will love God and give our lives away in love for others. We're in a sermon series in which we're asking, how then shall we live? Up to this point, we have learned from the Scriptures that the highest value that we can give our life to is pursuing a loving friendship with God, loving friendships with others, and loving and serving those that God brings into our lives. In this message, I want to talk about a fourth pursuit that is really part of all the others, and that is the pursuit of generosity. When we truly understand God's amazing love and grace and the unbelievably high price that Jesus paid to make a way for us to be forgiven and to be redeemed, we can no longer live for ourselves. Unless the miracle of the gospel is just kind of a cerebral thing for us. No, we will want to join our Lord in loving and serving others. Well, today we're going to examine from the scriptures God's plan for generosity. But before we get into it, please join me in dedicating our time in God's word to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a generous God, for giving us everything that we have and enjoy. Our hands are open to you to receive from you today, Lord. As we examine and learn from your word today, please soften our hearts and focus our minds to hear from you and give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So imagine a person of means sitting down with you one day and saying, I have a proposition for you. I have a deep desire to meet the needs of those who are hurting. And I'd like to meet their needs through you. And so here is $5,000 in $50 bills. And all I ask is, when you become aware of a legitimate need, as the Lord leads you, use however many of these bills you need to meet that particular need. When you run out of money, give me a call. I'm going to take you out for lunch, and if you'll tell me the stories of the people that you helped with my money, I'll replenish you with more money. Now, Think about that for a moment. I mean, if someone actually made an offer like that to you, wouldn't that just be a lot of fun? 
I mean, just going around and being generous and blessing people with someone else's money. Now, lest you accuse me of living in fantasy land, this actually happened to a pastor named Chip Ingram. When Chip was a young pastor, there was a man in his church named John who was financially blessed and who was very generous in supporting the ministry of their church. However, beyond supporting their church's ministry, John sensed God calling him to be even more generous. And so he met with his pastor and essentially made this offer to him. Well, after a lengthy question and answer period, Chip took him up on his offer. Chip says, each day as I prepared to leave the house, I put my wallet in one pocket and some of John's money in the other. I started to feel like Santa Claus every day of the year, wondering who God wanted me to help with John's money. It turned out to be an exciting adventure. When the money ran out, John would bless Chip with an amazing meal. Chip would bless John by let, uh, telling him stories of how his generosity made a real difference in the life of others. And then John would loudly proclaim, well, praise the Lord. And then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, let's do it again. And do it again they did. He would provide Chip with more funds and the generosity cycle would start all over again. Now, church, this is a picture of how God's kingdom economy works. And it also gives us a glimpse of the kind of friendship that we will enjoy with God when we're generous with what he has given to us. God's economy is based on a totally different value system than that of our culture. The economy of our culture is all about acquiring and accumulating, whereas God's kingdom economy is all about giving and sharing. Like John in the story that I just told, God wants to express his generosity through you and me. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled and turned their back on God, God has been on a mission to bring all people back in right relationship with himself. And God in his sovereignty has chosen to accomplish his mission again through you and me. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, it says, for we are co-workers in God's service. God wants us to be his representatives. Where we live, work, or go to school to make the invisible Christ visible for them to see. And one of the key ways that Christ is made visible is through our love and our generosity. However, because of our fallen nature, sacrificial generosity does not come natural to us. According to Romans 12, verse 2, sacrificial generosity will require that our minds be renewed. Rejecting the self-centered pattern of our culture and instead embracing God's plan for generosity. So what is God's plan for generosity? Well, in the scriptures, we see that God's plan for generosity is based on 
at least three key principles. And the first one is this. God owns it all. Whereas socialism and communism says the government owns everything, and capitalism says that the individual owns everything, biblical Christianity says God owns everything. In Exodus 19, verse 5, God declares, all the earth is mine. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns it all because he not only created it, but he also sustains it. Colossians 1.17 says he holds it all together. The air we breathe, the food that we eat, the money we possess, the, the car we drive, the talents that we have, the gift of life itself, all of it belongs to God. The psalmist says, we're fooling ourselves if we think that anyone but God owns it all. Psalm 49, 16 says, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. The statistics are unwavering, friends. Of those who are born, 100% die. Death is the great equalizer. You brought nothing into the world, and you'll carry nothing out, and neither will I. You know, our life would be so much richer and fuller and simpler and peaceful and satisfying if we just embraced this truth, that all that we have God owns and that we are simply the managers of what he's given to us. Well, that's the first principle of God's plan for generosity we see in the scriptures. God owns it all. The second principle is this. God gives to us. Although God owns everything, he gives it to us freely. In 1 Chronicles 29, David gives praise to God for the funds raised for the building of the temple. And he says this, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David realized that without God's generosity toward us, we would never have the opportunity to give it all. God has blessed us with amazing, sophisticated minds and talents, abilities, and of course, bodies. He's gifted us with his wonderful creation. He's given us the gift of time and friendships, family, our homes, clothes, and food. God gives all that we have to us freely and simply asks us to manage it. Now, you know what man's basic problem is? As we go out and we manage God's creation, we begin to think that we own it instead of just managing it. In other words, we trade places with God 
and we start acting like we're the owners, like we're the ones who created the world. And we start using words like my possessions and my plans and my time and my rights, my talents, my life. Folks, who gave all of that to you and me? God did. And then instead of being content with what God's given to us, we look over the fence at our neighbor and we say, hey God, why is she more famous than me? Or why does he have that executive position and I don't? Or why do they have all that money and we don't? That's not fair. I want what they have. And many times, people will take matters into their own hands and go into excessive debt or work themselves to the bone or compromise their convictions or risk their personal marriage or family health to get what others around them have. And yet, they fail to realize that God in his economic plan never intended for all of us to be the same or to have the same things. God says, I've given you exactly what you need to be and do what I'm calling you to be and do. Nothing more and nothing less. I'm asking you to manage it, to be grateful for it, and you are free to use it and enjoy it, but never forget I own it all because I made it and I keep it going. That's the first principle of God's kingdom economy. God owns it all. The second principle is God gives to us. The third principle is this. God gives through us. You know, Philippians 4.19 is one of the greatest promises in the Bible. A lot of people quote it. And it says this, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to note, God promises here to meet all of our needs, not all of our wants. And so you say, okay, pastor, you know, I understand this promise doesn't apply to those who are greedy or live beyond their means, but there are people in our world who aren't living beyond their means, who aren't going into debt foolishly. Why aren't their needs being met? I mean, is God a liar? Is this promise not valid? Well, the scriptures do point out uh, a number of reasons. But the primary reason that there are needy people in the world is because of selfishness and injustice. We live in a needy world primarily because we live in a greedy world. It's not that God hasn't provided. It's that too few people are sharing with others what God has already provided. It's just plain disobedience to God. And if we're disobedient to God in this matter of generosity, we can't claim his promise here to meet all of our needs. You see, as with many of God's promises, there is a condition to the promise that God gives in Philippians 4, uh, 19 
in the verses that precede it, verses 14 to 18. Paul commends the believers at Philippi for their sacrificial generosity extended to him in his ministry as well as the ministry of many others. And then he says, because you have exercised such unselfish generosity, you can count on God taking care of your needs. Now you see, this is how God intends his kingdom economy to work. And when we understand this and participate in his kingdom economy, the needs of people will be met. God's kingdom will come. And his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we fail to do our part, God's entire kingdom economy begins to break down. For example, it's not that God hasn't provided enough food to feed everyone on the planet. It's just that too many people who have enough income and money to be generous are choosing not to be. And you see, this is what's wrong with the way that the world's economy works. It's all about wanting and getting more for yourself and accumulating more for yourself, which results in a lot of other people not having their needs met. Recently I read that they estimate that the extremely wealthy have deposits of over 21 trillion dollars in secretive offshore accounts. More money than these people could ever spend in a lifetime. Money that could meet the needs of every person on this planet and then some. And yet money that is just stashed away doing little more than giving these wealthy people a false sense of importance and security. Now before we judge them too harshly, I read this past week that Syracuse professor Arthur Brooks he did a study on why tens of millions of Americans never give anything to any charity. When asked, why don't you give, the number one answer was, I don't have enough money to give. Now here's what's interesting. The you know, I can't afford to give excuse is used mostly by people with higher incomes than those with lower incomes. For example, people who make less than $25,000 a year gave 7.7% of their income to charity. People who made between 25 to 50,000 gave 4.6% of their income to charity. People who made 50 to 75,000 dollars gave 3.5% of their income to charity. And people who made between 100,000 right up into the millions gave only a little more than 2% of their income to any kind of charity. You see, the reality is, it's not that God hasn't provided what we need to be generous. 
It's just that most people choose to invest 97, 98% of what he's provided on themselves rather than to be generous with all that he has given to them. No, church, God gives to us to meet our needs, yes. But he often gives us even more than what we need. Again, not what we want, but what we need so that we in turn can bless others through our generosity. Now, if we shrink back and we refuse to step out in obedience to God's call to be generous, we will never know what God wanted to accomplish in us and through us and how the world would be a different place had we been generous. Nor will we experience the priceless faith adventure God has in store for us to grow our faith in Him and also our friendship with Him. So I'm going to get real practical at this point. Here is how God's plan for generosity works. First of all, God gives to us in the same way that John, the fellow in my opening illustration, put $5,000 into uh, the account of his pastor, so God makes a deposit, as it were, into our trust account. The, the deposit could be time, it could be talent, it could be money, and what he gives to you will likely not be the same as what he gives to me or what he gives perhaps to one of your friends. Sometimes he gives to you what I need and he gives to me what you need. Now when we're generous and we share, then God's economy works the way that it's supposed to and our needs get met. And so God makes a deposit as it were to our trust account. That's the easy part. That's step one. Step two, at some point, God will make us aware of a need or an opportunity to give, and he will prompt us to transfer some or all that he's put into our trust account into the trust account of other people. That's the harder part. If we respond in obedience, God promises to make compensating deposits into our trust account, not only to provide for our needs, but at times giving us even more than we need so that we can give more to those who are in need or to ministries that uh, require funds. Luke 6.38 says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, to be clear, this is not a give in order to get more kind of scheme. Such thinking violates the spirit behind what the Bible teaches. God knows your heart. And if you give in order to get more for yourself, count on being disappointed because God does not bless or bankroll selfishness. God's not a celestial vending machine the way that some prosperity preachers would have us believe. 
where you kind of give money to their ministry and presto, you are assured to get even more money back. However, of this you can be sure. If you give with a pure heart, God will meet all of your needs. And because he's creative and a generous God, he may bless you in ways that you never even expected. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11 gets right to the heart of the matter. The Apostle Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can what? So that you can live in luxury and have and hoard far more than you need? No, it doesn't say that at all. He says, you will be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. I like how Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, God doesn't prosper me to raise my standard of living. No, he prospers me to raise my standard of giving. So when we sense God calling us to send a note of appreciation to someone, and we do it. When we take supper over to a family that, who, who just had uh, a, a baby, or maybe a family that just experienced the loss of a loved one, when we call someone or visit with someone safely, when we send a care package to a missionary, or we provide groceries for a hurting family, either directly or through our church's compassion ministry, when we write someone a check or purchase something for them or give them something of ours that we use and enjoy for no other reason than because we believe God is calling us to do so. When we shovel someone's walk, when we help someone move, when we give someone a ride to a doctor's appointment, when we shop for someone who's immune compromised, when we stop and pray for someone that God has brought to our mind, when we simplify our lives and we slash our clothing and maybe our coffee budget to give more to God's kingdom work, when we support Christ-centered, transparent, and accountable parachurch organizations when we faithfully and cheerfully and sacrificially support the mission of our church with the time and the talents and the financial resources that we've received from the Lord. You see, the list could go on and on. In short, when we obey the Lord and are generous with all that he gives to us, we are exercising faith, and in so doing, we're involving God in our lives and also in our finances. And when we do that, God promises to not only meet our needs and to grow our faith, but to meet the needs of the world through us. Now, church, as you grasp this, and truly trust God's plan for generosity, you're going to find yourself having a totally different mindset in life. You will find yourself asking a certain question, not just occasionally, but daily, sometimes even hourly. And that question is, Jesus, what do you want me to do 
with all that you've entrusted me with. What do you want me to do with the abilities and the talents and the spiritual gifts you've entrusted to me? What do you want me to do with the time that you've entrusted to me? What do you want me to do with the money and the possessions, the cars, the house, the cottages, the recreation vehicles that you've entrusted me with? What do you want me to do with the health, the strength that you've entrusted me with? God wants his kingdom to come. And his plan for his kingdom to come is to transform lives and marriages and families and communities and cities and our world. Through us, his church, his new community, his new kingdom. He wants to make the invisible Christ visible through our lives and our generosity. The issue is, do we believe God in this? Do we trust Jesus enough to obey his word and to listen to his promptings, to be who he calls us to be, to do what he calls us to do, and to give what he calls us to give. Even more so, can God trust us with what he's given to us to use for the purposes that he intended? I'll close with this. Chuck Swindoll writes, money can buy you a nice house, but not a home. A fancy bed, but no peaceful sleep. Companions, but not genuine friends. Sex, but not love. Pills, but not health. Fun, but not fulfillment. Money can buy us everything but true satisfaction and take us everywhere but heaven. You know, church, I remind us again that there are only two things, only two, that we can take with us to heaven. Our friendship with Jesus and those people that we've introduced to Jesus, either directly or indirectly through our generosity. That's it. All our money, our stuff, our trophies, our self-centered achievements will all be left behind one day. Only what's done for Christ is going to last for eternity. Moments after we die or we meet Jesus, we'll know exactly how we should have lived, how we should have invested our time and what it is that God gave to us, our abilities, our talents, and the money and the resources he provided for us. We will see with the clarity of eternity. In that moment, we will see firsthand the fruit of our lives, what it is we gave our lives to. And we will either experience, like Robert did, 
the joy of having loved God and others generously. Or, like Ben, the despair of having loved only ourselves. May what will be most important to us then be most important to us now. Let's take a moment and just reflect on God's Word. As you look at your life, as you look at your fears, your ambitions, the level of your generosity, in whom are you really trusting and living for, really? For, for you to live is what? Just ask the Lord. Open your hands to him right now and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you're asking me to do about it? After a moment of reflection, we'll close in a song of response, of worship to God.